I wonder what happened in sports over the weekend. Anything in particular? Anything that I really need to highlight or get into? This is going to be an epic podcast unlike any other. Fasten your seatbelts because I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth here over the course of the next hour. So you've been warned. It's all coming up. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. I wish I could say the same for my sports life, which I'll get into because we're just three days into October. And here in the Northeast, it might as well feel like it's mid-November because they actually turned the heat on in my apartment as of last night. And yes, there's going to be plenty of heat coming into this microphone and into your earbuds or speakers because, oh, do I have quite a bit to get into. Sports talk, if this is what you truly love and truly crave for, you have come to the right place. And what better day than today as this is the J Reels podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Let's get right to it. And I mentioned this at the top. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. I know I've generally kept this podcast clean over now 296 episodes. Yes, every now and again, I'll throw in an expletive. Yeah, I'll throw in a curse word. Yeah, I'll throw in something just to get off my chest, but I use it in proper form. I'm not going to just curse just to curse. That's not the way this podcast rolls, but boy. After what I experienced over the last 48 hours, 72 now because we're going back to Friday, and having to watch what took place in Atlanta, as well as what happened in Pittsburgh, but that's a whole other story. And I'll get to everything that's happening in the world of sports, so before everybody's going to think about J Reels getting on a soapbox, how could I not? And this goes out to all the Met fans in my life, whether you're my Uncle Mark, my dear friends, John Guerrero, 
Jimmy Coleman, James Douglas, Jasmine. I know I'm forgetting a couple off the top of my head. So please forgive me if I did forget about you. But what we witnessed in Atlanta, and we could talk about all of the machinations. I'm sure you heard it ad nauseum over the weekend. That all the Mets needed to do was win one game. One. That's it. Because they would have been able to control their own destiny going into the final series of the year at home against Washington, who I get that they've been a little bit feisty. Yes, they did lose three out of four to the Phillies over the weekend, but they did win the one game 13 to four. So I get it that they are a Major League Baseball team, even though they're the worst in the sport, but they can win a game every now and so often. But let's start here because when I was on the podcast Thursday after that miraculous win on Wednesday night where Eduardo Escobar single-handedly won the game and at that point put the Mets a game ahead of the Braves with the day off on Thursday and then heading into the weekend to where the pitching was lined up perfectly. Chris Bassett, Jacob deGrom, Max Scherzer which were the same three pitchers in Oakland the previous weekend, which led into them winning two out of three. And I thought it was going to be the same coming into this series against the Braves to where you put Bassett first, the Grom second, serves the third. As it was, they flip-flopped the Grom and Bassett. So they put Jake on Friday. And I don't know if this was a precaution because of the game at the end of the year, which would have been this coming Wednesday to close out the regular season to maybe they wanted Jake to pitch that game just in case if it was for a division. But why did they do that? The Mets had a one-game lead. Why did they try to get cute there? Why did they try to proverbially go for the juggler against the Braves when you're up one game in the division? Why not keep it the way it was the following weekend in Oakland to where you had Bassett pitch on seven days rest and that's two days more than what he would normally receive and the same would have happened for Max Scherzer, Jacob DeGrom, let me flip-flop that because DeGrom pitched Saturday in Oakland if you remember had the meltdown the first inning, etc. But that could have been the formula going into this Brave series to where we didn't even have to worry about having to move guys up or move guys back or to adjust the rotation to the point where We were in first place. So I don't know if that was the GM's idea, Billy Epler. I don't know if that was Buck Showalter or Jeremy Hefner's idea to say, let's put Jake on Friday. That was a panic move. There was no need for them to try to upend or be cute or to revise the rotation. Not only because they were ahead a game in the division, but they could have aligned their pitching to where they could look forward to not only winning this division, but also looking ahead to the division series as opposed to having that safety net in case of a scenario where they needed that game 162 in order for them to win and then not have DeGrom available just in case if they didn't win the division if the wild card presented itself. And as it is, and of course we'll get into, that's going to be the case. So that's the first thing I got to get out of the way. As far as the games themselves, the crazy thing is is that everybody's been trashing Jacob DeGrom on Mets Twitter. And I get it. You can't look at some of these fans and their perspectives and opinions, etc. I understand. But there have been a lot of unpopular takes to where 
people are just throwing the grum out like yesterday's newspaper. They're looking at his recent performance and it hasn't been good. But here's the crazy thing. Out of the three pitching performances we saw over the weekend, he was by far the best. And he gave up three home runs. And I don't understand why these Mets fans all of a sudden think that they're looking beyond this year because, oh, we're not going to resign him. He's not worth the money. Why even bother? He's getting old. He's injury prone. Let's think about the right now. Let's think about this moment. Okay, and I talk about this on the podcast from time to time as far as being present, staying in the moment, etc. Yes, he did not pitch well in Oakland. Yes, for him, he did not pitch well because the expectation for Jacob deGrom is giving up one run or less, which we've seen in almost 50% of his starting pitching performances. So anything more than giving up a run, two runs, dare I even say three runs, it's almost as if this guy is human all of a sudden. And when you look at his line the other night, now granted he came out after 86 pitches, which I didn't know why, and Buck bringing in Tyler McGill, who has not done anything since he's been back off of the IL. He has not pitched well at all. But with the six-inning performance, 86 pitches, gave up five hits, three runs, I understand three solo home runs, but no walks and 11 strikeouts. Even then, if you would have told me that at the start, of the evening, I'd say, well, maybe the Mets win 4-3-5-3. They somehow find a way to win a game. And this is with Max Fried having to leave the game after five innings because he felt ill. So then the brave bullpen just came down and mowed down the Mets offense from innings six through nine. And even though the ninth inning was a little dicey with Kenley Jansen and Buck did not have a great game, even though I understand that you could have probably put Daniel Vogelbach or... Who else? I mean, Tyler Aquin batted up after him to strike out to end the game to pinch it for Francisco Alvarez. But Alvarez had a couple of good at-bats. The reason why he was brought up was for power. And yes, he did strike out on that at-bat. But I wasn't particularly in the camp of why did he not pinch it for Alvarez at that spot. I was fine with that. McGill, that's a whole other story. So they lose game 1-5-2. So now I'm thinking, all right, Max Scherzer, which by far was his biggest start as a Met. And here it was. He did not pitch well. Five and two-thirds or five and a third, whatever it was. He gave up nine hits. Of course, the home runs, as we saw there over the weekend, it seemed like whenever Dansby Swanson, Matt Olson, or Austin Riley got up, you had to hold your breath and even close your eyes because those guys raked. And you've heard throughout the broadcast, whether it was Friday night, Saturday, even last night, how these guys were ice cold in the month of September. Of course, when the Mets come to town, whole different story. But Scherzer did not pitch well. He didn't put hitters away. He was just laboring throughout the whole evening and then obviously was taken out of the game when Dansby Swanson took him deep and that's all she wrote. Again, the Mets offense was like the witness protection program. Nowhere to be found. And now you have to go into yesterday's game where the Braves, who came into the series one more time, down a game, and now here they are, up a game. And then last night, Mets get off the mat. Granted that the Braves get a run there in the first inning. Vogelback hits the home run. Then the third inning where the Mets get a couple of runs, and you think to yourself, now we could just be able to try to tack on a few more because you know that these runs are so precious. So when they had, what was it, first and third, nobody out. Mark Hanna up and he hits that chopper down the third baseline where Austin Riley 
Rolled the dice to see if the ball will go foul. And sure enough, it went foul by inches. And that was the telltale sign for the rest of the evening because after that, the Mets did not score a run. If that ball would have hit the bag or somehow, someway just hopped right over it and you would have had a run in, probably would have had first and third, maybe even second and third. Who knows how that inning unfolds. And then Chris Bassett, who has been very good this year. 15-8, and eight, again, nine days rest, which is inexplicable to me. But now he has the 3-1 lead, heading into the bottom of the third. And now he can't find the strike zone. And now he's getting smacked around. And then Travis Darno, who now all of a sudden is an Iron Man, you can't get him out of the lineup. And the Mets cannot even get him out, period. Gets the key base knock. This is after Austin Riley gets hit when they had runners on second and third. And Bassett, you thought, maybe could get out of the inning when he strikes out Michael Harris. And then out goes Bassett, two and two-thirds. His night is done. Just a complete disaster by this Met starting rotation over the weekend. And then, of course, they were unable to score a run the rest of the night. To where Kenley Jansen pitched three straight days. Had an easy performance there Saturday night after struggling there on Friday. And you thought maybe last night that maybe Jansen would be a little tired. That maybe Jansen would serve up a couple of meatballs. That he's not going to be as sharp. That he's not going to be as effective. And what happens? Meekly into the night, the Met offense goes. And with that, they kissed the division goodbye. I can't take it anymore. And I knew it, even going back to the middle of the year when everybody talked about the Mets running away with this division and I was one that I did not. And for all these people that want to get at me and say, oh, how could the Mets blow a 10 and a half game lead? They blew the division. Did they forget about 2007? When the Mets had a seven game lead with 17 games to play? That may have been 15 years ago, but boy, that certainly was not far from my memory. And you know what? A 10 and a half game lead starting from June 1st is not insurmountable. That these fans make it think like the Mets blew this lead pretty much in the last four or five weeks. And granted, we can look back in September how they got swept by the Cubs how they lost two out of three to the Nats, how they almost got swept by the Marlins just this past week. And they've been pathetic against teams that they should have beaten up on. I'm not trying to say that they should have swept the Cubs or at least won one game. Two out of three would have been nice. And who knows, if they would have won two out of three, they probably would have been tied at this point. And the Braves continue to mash, and we understand that's their MO, but they're going to be a team to be reckoned with and look, forward to probably winning back-to-back titles. And I'm going to get to the Braves in a second because I got to, I got to, ugh. So that's another thing with 2007. So I don't want to hear anything from whether Met fans, non-Met fans, I could care less. I've seen this movie way too many times. And I get it that people are going to say, Jay Reels, they're still in the playoffs. Jay Reels, relax. Jay Reels, they can still go, still go on a run. Yes, that is all possible. And I'm trying to spin this in the most positive light that I possibly can. I know I haven't in the last, whatever, seven, eight minutes of this monologue, but when is it ever going to change for this organization? They may win 100 games and not win a division. And only the Mets, only the Mets that could be in first place but all but three games or three days this year and not win a division. 
on the heels of last year when they were in first place from May 1st till about August 6th when they went to Philadelphia and got swept. And Philly was in first place at the time. And then the next thing you know, the Braves said, all right, thanks for keeping that spot warm. Now we're going to take over. They win the division and we know what happened to them the rest of the year. So now here it is. The Mets were in first place the whole year and the Braves said, thanks for keeping it warm. We'll take it from here. I'm tired. I can't take this anymore. Why do you think that the Met fan is always cynical and jaded? It's because of situations like this. Now, I don't want to hear it. DeGrom does not pitch on Wednesday. Unless the Braves lose the first two games in Miami and the Mets win the two games here against the Nationals. And as it is, from what I heard last night, that Sandy Alcantara is not even going to pitch on Wednesday. So Sandy Beach down in Miami, uh uh-uh. We're going to take our umbrella and blanket, wrap it up, and we'll see you in 2023. Which, thank you, Miami Marlins. You could have done us at least a favor, but that's not going to matter because the Braves are going to win one of the next two games, and therefore, the division is going to be officially theirs. So you know what? Even if it does come down to that final game, where by some miracle, the Braves lose these two and the Mets win two, don't pitch the Grom in the game. Do not. Because have your rotation set properly for the wild card round and I'm not going to talk about that now we'll talk about it on Thursday and if you recall and maybe this could be an omen for the Mets in a good way to where they lost four out of six to San Diego during the regular season and chances are they're going to play them this coming weekend at City Field and then if you want to even look back at what happened in late August into September where they took two out of three against the Dodgers but mind you they're not going to have Scherzer the ground probably until games two and three in that series. And so now you're going to have to push all your chips to the middle of the table for Chris Bassett, maybe even Taiwan Walker to pitch a game four or game five. The Mets just, they screw up a lottery ticket. They do. There was no need for them to change their rotation by any means. If they were down a game heading into the weekend, I could see that. But they didn't. It was unnecessary. And Lord knows, I thought I was going to be cursing up a storm by now. And I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And look, I guess just trying to be professional and try not to just, as much as I'm going over the deep end inside, but whatever's coming out of my mouth isn't to the extent where every other word is an F-bomb or a 12-letter word. But if you're a Met fan this morning, I don't care how optimistic you remain. And yes, maybe the baseball gods have it to where we have to go through the hard route. That yes, we went through a whole season where we were in first place and then we spit the bit in the last week to now all of a sudden maybe beat the Padres two out of three or hopefully at least sweep so we could save that game three starter for the division series. Pick off the Dodgers in a five-game series to dispose them and then have to climb Mount Atlanta to beat the Braves in a seven-game series and then go on to a World Series. So who knows? Maybe face the New York Yankees of all teams, dare I even say, and then win a World Series to have that cataclysmic, like, oh my goodness, we never expected this to happen. Maybe it has to go that way. But I will say this. It doesn't matter who's wearing that uniform. Tripper Jones, Andrew Jones, Brian Jordan, John Rocker. 
Fast forward 20 years because now it's Austin Riley, Matt Olson, not even Ronald Acuna Jr. killed us this weekend. So even think about that. Dansby Swanson, doesn't matter. Or even the ballpark. From Turner Field to now Truist Park, it doesn't matter. The Mets cannot beat the Braves when their lives are on the line. Forget about when the money's on the line. And think about that. This is going back more than 20 years. And remember, when the Mets went to the World Series in 2000, the Braves got picked off by the Cardinals. So, think about that for a second. And the Braves aren't going anywhere for the next decade. Because even if Dansby Swanson goes, and chances are he's probably going to go because they've already locked Austin Riley 10 years for $212 million. They locked Michael Harris just a couple of months ago, if that. Eight years, $72 million. They've given deals to Ozzie Albies, who hasn't even played, who fractured his finger a couple weeks ago, but you know he's coming back for the postseason. Ronald Acuna Jr., which I said a weeks ago they should have fired his agent when he signed that deal because the guy's worth probably well over $300 million. And I understand he's a dog at times, whatever, but we know how talented he is. Now they just need to lock up their pitchers, whether your name is Max Fried, who's a free agent, I believe, after next year, and they have Spencer Strider in the mix. They're going to have all these guys. And what do the Mets have? All right, we can talk about Francisco Alvarez. We can talk about Matt Vientos. We can talk about some other players. But this is an older team. This is a win-now team. The Braves are going to be here for at least 10 years and not going anywhere. I don't know what else to say, man. I don't. And who knows? Maybe come Thursday, right before the postseason, I'll try to paint a rosier picture. I'll try to look at it to say, okay, with the Mets being at home, oh, and if they even lose in this wild card, could you imagine? Oh, of course I can. How, how could I not? But boy, a season that looks so promising, and I even said this two days ago, where the Mets have always seemed to win the game they absolutely needed to win. Think about just this past Wednesday night. Now, granted, it was miraculous, and I understand it was the Marlins, but they needed that game in the worst way just to be one up heading into this past weekend. And I thought last night that somehow, some way, even when they took a 3-1 lead and they left those runners on the base pass with no out and, oh, I knew it was going to come back to bite us and Bassett couldn't even let that hold for a half an inning. I don't know, people. Trust me, I'm okay. I'm not going to call any suicide hotlines and not that I'm trying to make light of that or joke about that, okay? I'm talking about in the realm of sports, and for those out there who are listening, who are going through it, it's okay. Just breathe, take a deep breath, which is probably what I need to do right now. But in all seriousness, this is the toy department of life. This isn't anything to get crazy about. This isn't anything to that it should be health declining by any stretch. Yes, I get it a little on the mental side because of, thank God, this microphone. And knock on wood, nothing to the point where my heart's going to be tested because of watching this godforsaken baseball team. But come Thursday, I will try to be as objective and right down the middle as I possibly can because I don't care if you're the most dynawool, sunny blue skies, blue and orange pom-poms, or you're just down in the abyss to where you look at every little thing as a negative I will make sure that 
That will not be the case. And I'll give a fair assessment of this postseason and especially of this opening round where the Mets are going to be hosting at City Field come Friday night. And if anybody was interested in the NL wildcard, you could say that the Brewers pretty much punted their postseason hopes because the Marlins came in and won three out of four in Milwaukee. And even with the Diamondbacks coming in and an easy schedule over the next three days, just losing those three games set them two games back in the wild card. So where they're going to have to sweep and the Phillies are going to have to get swept in Houston, similar to what the Mets are going to have to do if they're going to win a division, which we know huh, it's not going to happen. But in order for the Brewers to make it into the postseason, they will have to sweep and then the Phillies will have to be swept. Other than that, the Phillies look like they're going to be the sixth seed and go to St. Louis, barring, I'm not going to say a miracle, but as we look at the standings here, you would think that the Phillies will just hold serve, be the sixth seed. They're currently, I believe, 86 and 73. And the Padres are 87 and 72. So they actually have a game lead. So that's my error, people. My apologies. And the Padres will be hosting the Giants the next three days. So if you're a Met fan, here's the thing. Do you root for the Phillies to get the five spots? You can face them in the first round as opposed to San Diego. Quite honestly, at this point, I could care less. Let's just play the Padres. Whomever we play, that's it. There's no way that I'm going to look at this stage of the year with three games left to see, ooh, who do I want to play more, the Phillies or the Padres? Let the aliens come down from somewhere in the outer orbit and dress up as Padres or Phillies, and if that's who we have to play, so be it. Right now, there's no way any Met fan could think to even pick their opponent, or would rather face, I should say, than just play the whomever you're going to face and that's at, and it's going to be the Padres. Because even with a one-game lead, I would think that San Diego will be that team come Friday night that the Mets will face. And in the American League, Toronto's going to host the Mariners more likely because Tampa, they stubbed their toe over the weekend, and even though they're still mathematically alive to get the five seed to play Toronto, but we think it's going to be, at least at the moment, it's going to be Tampa at Cleveland, Seattle at Toronto, and then, like I mentioned, Padres, Mets, Phillies, Cardinals. That's going to be your opening weekend of the wild card this coming Friday. And if I had to take a guess right now, I would think the Mets would probably be in prime time. Your first game. I would not be surprised if the Guardians will be the first game. You would think 1 o'clock. Then maybe they're going to go, what, 337? It's quite possible you may have the National League game, maybe fill these Cardinals. Then the 630 game or 607 game, whatever you want to call it, will be the other American League game with Seattle and Toronto, and then the nightcap will be San Diego and the Mets, probably, what, 8.07? That's how it's probably going to get broken down, I would think, for both Friday and Saturday, and then we'll see, obviously, into Sunday if there's going to be a deciding Game 3 in those series. So that's just my guess. That's how we're going to look at it here as we get into the final few games of the regular season. And with that being said, Aaron Judge still stuck on 61. I think he's still going to get 62 because Texas is awful. Their pitching is abominable. And I would think that as much as they'll try to pitch around him, which 
you'll probably see a lot of. But I think he'll get one at bat where he'll have an opportunity to get a fastball or to get a good pitch to drive and he'll get 62. Now, is it going to be in the final at bat or in his final game where it could be dramatic filled or the drama will build up? Or will he get it tonight? Because remember, they do have four games including a doubleheader which I think is tomorrow. I don't think it's on Wednesday. And remember, these games are made up because of the lockout going back to early April. So I think he's going to get it. And then Albert Pujols hit two more home runs over the weekend. So now he's at 702 as he continues his assault. Now, of course, he's not going to catch Babe Ruth at 714. But knowing that he has some separation outside of 700 just shows how much this future Hall of Famer has had not only an, a career that anybody could ever dream of, but not only just hitting 700 home runs, but even surpassing that definitely makes it even that much more legit if you ask me. Not to say that even if he just got to 700 and that was it, you'd say, well, he just barely made it. No. He not only made the milestone with about a week, 10 days to go, but now he's even jumped past that. So kudos to Albert Pujols as well. That's what we have with the baseball. As far as the NFL, let me get to that quick, fast, in a hurry because to me, this NFL week was nothing to sneeze at and we understand that not every week is going to be like that. Even though you have one undefeated team, that being the Eagles, and now everybody at least has a win under their belt thanks to the one team that I'm going to anoint as my winner of the week as we go into the winners and losers. And I'm going to give that to the Las Vegas Raiders. They were able to hang on to beat the Broncos. All right, the Broncos have not been world beaters to start off this year. But knowing that the Raiders had to win this game in the worst way, if they were going to be part of any playoff discussion, and granted, we're not even a quarter into the season. But for them to finally get that first win under their belt against a division opponent and in their building, not to say that's going to go a long way, not to say that that's going to be the springboard for them to start winning some games in a row or to get on track as far as their season is concerned, but give it up. Josh Jacobs had a big game on the ground where Derek Carr didn't really do much in the air. So you have to look at what the Raiders have done and give them their kudos as they're the last team to win a game here in this early part of the 2022 season. So they are my winner number one for the week. My winner number two are the Tennessee Titans. And here's a team that, as weird as they are, when you think that they have no business of winning a game or the other way around where you feel as if, oh, they're playing well, they're at the top of their game, and then they fall flat on their face. And granted that the Colts, even on the heels of winning against the Chiefs the week prior and thinking that it was going to be a mano a mano battle for the AFC South supremacy in this early portion of the season, but Tennessee did what they had to do, win a road game, put themselves back at 500 after starting off 0-2, They're tied with Jacksonville now at the top of the division, and we'll talk about Jacksonville in a minute. But for the Titans, and for them to get a big effort out of Derrick Henry, yes, you get a little bit of Ryan Tannehill, but we all know in a big spot you can't trust him. But here are the Titans, after that dreadful start, losing to the Giants and then getting blasted in Buffalo, here they are, back where they belong, at or near the top of the AFC South, And kudos to them for bouncing back and putting themselves in a position to where now, let's see if they can right the ship 
and have a decent season from here on out. But we know it's Tennessee. We know they're going to have their moments. And to think, this team was a one seed last year in the AFC, and we saw what happened in the divisional round against the Bengals. And I understand there may be some people that say, Jay Reels, what about the Jets? How about giving them some shine? I'll talk about that a little bit later on. And of course, the quarterback situation with the Steelers. But I gave the Jets their kudos a couple weeks ago. I can't give consecutive or two of the past three weeks winners to the Jets. So again, I'll give them their due a little bit later on. As for my losers, the first one goes to the Miami Dolphins. And not because they lost the game against the Bengals there on Thursday night, but this is a combination of the Dolphins, their medical staff, and even the NFL for that matter, because what took place at midfield at formerly known as Paul Brown Stadium there on Thursday night where Tua gets slammed to the turf after what he experienced just four days prior against Buffalo at the end of the first half to where he was wobbling to try to get back to the huddle. And here it was just four nights later where we see Tua getting carted off with his fingers twitching and him being frozen on that turf to where the neurologist that was appointed, whether it's by the league or by the team, he or she is gone. I don't even know the person's name. They're gone. And the NFL has a lot of explaining to do whether he was on the injury report, which I'm sure he was, or it was probably for a back and not for concussion. But how this kid played and suited up in that game is beyond me. I mean, think about this. Even if Tua took over Loa at the end of the game against Buffalo, or even when he was sent back in the locker room that 25 minutes, even if he was able to recite the alphabet backwards in 15 seconds or less, I still wouldn't have had him suit up and perform in that game there on Thursday night. That was a disgrace no matter how you dissect it. To have him be at risk under center throughout the course of a game just four days after he was wobbling and looking punch drunk like a boxer, man, that is just a bad look by the league and they could sweep it under the rug and they could try to mask it however they want. But somebody, and they haven't even done so yet, even though Tua Tagovailoa is on the injury report where he's going to be out indefinitely due to concussion protocol, but where was that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of last week? I don't care if he is a robot. I understand he's a young kid that he can rebound a lot faster. But boy, that was just not only a bad optic, but somebody and many bodies dropped the ball on that because the NFL should have gotten involved to where if he was going to start that game, they should have called and say, is this kid really 100%? Because we do not want to have a situation that we saw there. And hopefully this is a cautionary tale moving forward. How do they have this guy play four days later is beyond me. But anyway, they're losing number one. Loser number two goes to the Baltimore Ravens. And if you're a Raven fan, I know you got to be sick because your game is, let's face it, predicated on the run. We've seen it expand a little bit more this year. We've seen a lot of plays in the air, whether it's to Rashad Bateman, Devin Duvernay, Mark Andrews, who is his safety blanket and security blanket, I should say, as we've seen time after time after time. But for the Ravens twice at home this year, blow double-digit leads, 17-point leads at that. Because if you remember the Miami game, they were up 35-14 in the fourth quarter and they gagged. And they were up 20-3 in this game and they spit the bit. And for the Ravens, I get it that John Harbaugh, for whatever he saw on his analytics sheet, it was best for them to go for the touchdown there at 20-20 as opposed to kick the field goal 
late fourth quarter with about four minutes to go. And as it was, Jackson throws an interception in the end zone to where the Bills, even still, let's say if they would have punched it into the end zone, the Bills still marched down the field and kicked a game-ending 21-yard field goal where they were knocking on the doorstep. So even if he thought that his defense was going to be unable to stop Josh Allen and the Bill offense, it didn't matter because they marched down the field anyway. So if they would have kicked the field goal there, and I get it, you would have had a tie going into overtime, and who knows what would have happened then. But that was just an asinine call. And we understand that Harbaugh has rolled the dice going back to last year in that Steeler game in early December to where... It was 20 to 19, and it went for two. And I get it that his defense was decimated at that point. So he figured, what the hell? It's eight seconds to go. Let's go for two. We win the game. We'll look heroic. All right. We'll give him that. But then a few weeks later against Green Bay, he did the same thing where they were down 31 17. They came back to make it 31 30, and they went for two to go for the win. I get it, Aaron Rodgers, et cetera. But what was he doing there? And now the analytics must have showed him, let's go for the touchdown. We'll be able to punch it in, and they did not. They turn the ball over, and the next thing you know, they go off as losers 23-20. And the AFC North, think about this. You have three teams that tied the top at 2-2, two and two, and the Steelers, who have been awful to start off the year, they're just a game behind them, which is crazy to think about. But let me go through some of these games here. Jacksonville, Philadelphia, I know that was a game I didn't really talk about last week because when you see Jacksonville, you don't look at them as that team that, oh, this is a must-watch or at least a watchable type game. And they jumped out early, 14-0. Jalen Hurts did not play well, but Miles Sanders kicked it up into high gear as he had a ton of yards on the ground. Very productive, 134 yards, I believe 27 carries and two TDs. And the Eagles, the only undefeated team in the NFL after four weeks, they're the ones standing And a good performance for them to bounce back the way they did. Jacksonville, listen, to go to LA, we know the Chargers, Paper Tigers, but to win 38-10, this was going to be a tough task for them because to win not only two road games back-to-back for a young team, but to go up against a team that's been undefeated, this would have been a remarkable achievement for Doug Peterson, Trevor Lawrence and company if they would have been able to pull this off. And even though they got off to a great start, but they were unable to remain competitive from that point after, in fact, the Eagles outscored him 29-7 the rest of the game. So the Eagles, Jalen Hurts, flying and riding high at 4-0, and and I'm looking like a horse's ass considering that the Eagles, I picked as an under at 9.5, and oof, that is just a bad one. I just thought that they were going to be on the fringe and it would have come down to the last week if you ask me. Not to say they were going to win six or seven games, but I thought it was going to come down to that last week to where they were going to either get that 10th victory or be stuck at 9. And as it is right now, they're going to blow past that, barring either an epic collapse or major injuries to that roster. Besides that, you didn't really have a lot of good games. Surprisingly, the game in Green Bay between New England and the Packers, where you had a guy pretty much off the street and one Bailey Zappi. Sounds like a cartoon character, if you ask me, but... Not really effective in the game, but he did keep his team in the game and they fared well. But when they got to overtime, the Packers were able to win at the buzzer there. Mason Crosby gets the field goal to win 27-24. So give it up. The Patriots did make it a game. They had a pick six early on in the game as well. And you got to give them credit. But without Mac Jones, who's going to be out for an indefinite amount of time with a high ankle sprain. And the Patriots, they're going to have a long year. 
That's all there is to it. They're one and three right now, and their only win was against Pittsburgh. So that's all you need to know about the Pats so far this early part of the season. Besides that, the other games, yeah, we could talk about the Sunday night game between KC and Tampa, where KC jumped out to an early 21-3 lead. Then it was 28-17, and they pretty much were in control throughout, even though the Buccaneers try to keep it close and try to keep it interesting. Of course, this is a rematch of Super Bowl 55, which was played in that stadium. But they cannot replicate what they did back in February of 2021 here last night. Not that that matters because I'm sure the Super Bowl victory is going to be sweeter than a regular season loss at home to the Kansas City Chiefs. But the Buccaneers have come back down to earth after starting off their year 2-0. And here they were giving up 41 points to a Chief team that looks like they're going to get themselves back on track to the point where they're going to be a tough out in the AFC. Do I really have to go through some of these games here on the schedule? I mean, this is as bad as it gets. Arizona-Carolina, where the Cardinals won on the road 26-16, so they're back to 500. Do I even need to talk about the Giants? All right, Saquon Barkley looks like he's back. He's running the way he did when he first came into the league, and good for him because it's been a long, tough road for him where a lot of people thought that his best days were behind him, but I get it. He's going into a walk year, he's 100% healthy, and he's putting up some big numbers, so you know that the Giants, right now, they got to be pleasantly surprised and even pleased to know that their team is 3-1, and one. they did lose to Dallas there last Monday, but with Barkley pretty much carrying the offense, they're going to have to think long and hard to re-sign this kid to a big-time contract. Now, we know running backs aren't going to get paid like wide receivers or even quarterbacks for that matter, but he's going to get paid handsomely and also a big signing bonus to boot with guaranteed money coming if he continues this type of production. But 20-12, to 12, again, the only story is they wore their legacy uniforms, so they were throwbacks from the 70s and 80s, or even 90s for that matter, if you care. Washington and Dallas, Cooper Rush continues to play well, but again, it's the Commanders. Can I get geeked up over that? Even though the Commanders were hanging tough there for a half, but they showed their true colors, and I hate their uniforms. I mean, what are those uniforms? In black with the... Ugh, Can we go back to their original maroon colors with whatever logos that they've come up with now that they're the commanders? Cleveland and Atlanta, give it up to the Falcons. Now they played well. No Miles Garrett, who did not even make the trip because of the accident that he had. But when your offense is carried by Marcus Mariota, where he had 139 yards with 7 for 19, and you come away victorious and did not have a big game offensively, Now, I understand they did a lot on the ground. They had a bunch of rushing yards as I take a look at their box score. But if you're the Browns, this is a game that you have to win against an inferior opponent, especially if you want to do big things this year, even with Jacoby Brissett as your quarterback. But that's a bad loss if you're the Browns not being able to put away the Falcons there down in Atlanta. You had the London game between Minnesota and New Orleans. I didn't watch any of this. As you know, I'm not a fan of the London game. But to have the Vikings win to go 3-1 and one, as far as their record goes in the NFC North to keep pace with the Packers. And as we all know, they have the tiebreaker against Green Bay after four weeks. So they are currently have the pole position spot there in the NFC North. So they continue to keep pace there. And the Saints, I don't know what people were talking about as far as them having a big year or even going to an NFC Championship game, which a few big-time prognosticators said going back to the beginning of the year. But right now they're 1-3 and and they look like they're going to be a dead team walking before you know it. Seattle and Detroit, high score there. And Geno Smith has actually played pretty well here. 
He's put up some good numbers. He's actually been efficient at the position. And Detroit, they can't get out of their own way. They've scored a lot of points here at home, as we saw, whether it was 35 against the Eagles there in their opening game. And then same for where they played the Washington Commanders. They put up 36. They put up 45 at home and lose. And that's all you need to know about the Lions and where they're at here in this early part of the season. So give it up for Seattle winning there on the road. Again, a lot of these games, not a lot of appeal here. I wish I could say this game came down to the end or came down to the final few seconds or what have you, but not the case. Even the Chargers, they had a big lead 27-7 before the Texans came roaring back and they hung on the win there late. But even that game, and good for the Chargers to bounce back after that brutal loss at home against Jacksonville. And Houston, give it up. They've been competitive in these games, but they've been unable to get over the hump to get a win. Now, mind you, they are winless, but they do have a tie. And even though I talked about it before where they're the one team in the sport that they do not have a win under their belt, and I did mention that the Raiders were the one team that were 0-3. Well, we have to throw the Texans in as a team that has not gotten into the win column this year. Granted that they haven't lost all their games, but that tie does put a wrinkle into their record unlike the Raiders coming into this past week. And then the Steelers, give it up to the Jets. Zach Wilson, the Steelers defense is a shell of its old self, but I got to give it up. He made some throws yesterday that are very impressive. And this is really the first time I've got to watch Zach Wilson. Last year, I was in and out with Jet games and highlights and bits and pieces, but I was able to watch this game. There were times where I didn't watch. I was in and out because, listen, I can't hog the TV the whole day, my good people. I had to watch the Mets last night. That was priority number one in the Steeler game. I did watch, and thankfully my wife was generous enough for me to watch this game because of Kenny Pickett having to come into the game, and I'll get into that in a minute. But Zach Wilson, although his numbers... Didn't look impressive at the end of the day. What was he, 19 for 38, I believe. Did throw for 252 yards, but had two interceptions. He did catch a touchdown pass, which I believe the first time a Jet quarterback has caught a touchdown in their franchise's history. But Wilson made some impressive throws and marched their team down the field, down 20 to 17, and even down 20 to 10, to where they got close. And then they were able to capitalize on a turnover there late to where they were able to punch it into the end zone to make a 24-20. So a great job by the young quarterback. And if he's healthy and he's upright, he's going to be very good. How good remains to be seen. Is he going to be top 10 good? I know the Jet fan, they would sign for that in blood. But the kid has ability. He's definitely a world apart than Sam Darnold, that's for sure. But as far as the Steelers go, real quick, The Kenny Pickett era has begun. Mike Tomlin has not said that. Chances are you may see Mitchell Trubisky back, but let's face it. They're playing the Buffalo Bills this weekend and they are 13-point underdogs going into Orchard Park. I don't know if the Steelers are willing to put Kenny Pickett right into the fire to play against the Buffalo Bills, at least for this week. Maybe he comes in the mop-up, Trubisky, who knows. But Kenny Pickett, he definitely injected some life into that team. And as I said in weeks past, Mitch Trubisky isn't the problem. But he's definitely not the answer. The Steeler offensive brain trust, they put kid gloves on Trubisky pretty much from the opening kickoff against Cincinnati. 
He wasn't able to make plays. He wasn't able to try to put the team, not necessarily on his back, but to try to take chances or take risks. They gave him a safety net of an offense to not make mistakes, to manage the game. And when you're going to do that with a guy who does not have a lot of, of ability at the position, this is what they get. And I understand Trubisky was not happy there in the post game, pretty much having the PR director answer the questions for him. But I'm sure he knew that he had to play not at an A-plus level. You could have given me B football, just a B. But at best, his grade is a C-minus. And Trubisky, I get it that the touchdown in the back of the end zone looked like Deontay Johnson was able to hold it in. But of course, that wasn't the case. It looked like the left foot did get a little bit of the white where it was ruled incomplete, that he was out of bounds. But Trubisky, again, he is not the answer. Pickett comes in. He throws three interceptions in the game. Two of them were in his fault. The last one was a Hail Mary to end the game, which was picked off in the end zone. The one that Claypool had in his hands and dropped, it was up in the air and intercepted there down near the goal line. The second pick, you could actually maybe not fault him 100%. That was a risky throw to begin with. It was in Pat Fryermuth's hands. Popped out. It was intercepted, which was the big interception of the game at 20-17 to because that's when the Jets went down the field to punch it in the end zone. And there was one play that, kudos to the Jets, because they lined up at the line of scrimmage after Corey Davis caught. It was a second and seven. And it was a great pass over the middle where Davis slid, caught, and it looked like the nose of the football touched the ground. And I get it. You could look at it to say that he had possession, even though it hit the ground, but that could have been reviewed. And it was under two minutes in the game. But because the Jets were smart enough to hurry up to the line of scrimmage, get a snap off so they couldn't review it, therefore, who knows? That could have ended up in a third and seven. The Steelers probably would have given up the play anyway, but... That changed the outlook of that drive to where now they got to make two plays to get to a first down as opposed to getting a first in 10 at the Steeler, whatever it was, 22-yard line or maybe even inside the 20 at that point. And that's where the Steelers are right now. Pickett, he did give you a little bit of life. He did stand there, especially that one throw where he threw to Fryermuth there at the goal line where he took a massive hit by Quinn and Williams. So you love that the kid stood there in the pocket. He didn't try to throw it off his back foot or didn't try to float one in there, which nine times out of 10 would be intercepted. He did show you a little toughness. He did show you a little grit. I'm sure he was pumped up and ready to go. He had a lot of adrenaline going, so he probably didn't feel the thing. But you liked some things you saw to pick it, and there were a couple of things that you say, oh yeah, he's still a rookie. But he's going to be in the lineup before you know it, people. I mean, that's all there is to it. Because Trubisky's not long for this position, not long for this job at all. And no offense to him, no knock on him. But the writing's on the wall, people. Trubisky's not going to keep you in games. He's not going to win you games. We look back at that opening week against the Bengals, and that game was all on their defense. Seven sacks, they got five turnovers, and they only converted into 23 points. So if you give Trubisky five turnovers, and that's going to be your output offensively, you know where the season's going from an offensive standpoint with that quarterback. That's what you got there with week four tonight. Caps off with Rams and Niners in a good game there for a Monday night for Buck and Aikman. I'll talk about 
the week five schedule on Thursday, but that's what you have there as far as the NFL goes. As for college football, a very interesting Saturday took place to where Bryce Young, I guess you could say maybe Georgia, having to squeak out a game on the road at Missouri to where they were uphill the whole game and then he took over there late with a touchdown with about four minutes to go. So now with them having a victory under their belt and an ugly win at that, but they get knocked down to number two in the country because Alabama with their win in Arkansas and Bryce Young, although they say his shoulder's okay, he had to leave the game in the second quarter as he was trying to attempt not getting sacked and he dove to make a pass, landed on his right shoulder. You didn't see him for the rest of the game. And that was the big story in college football because without Bryce Young, you can forget about them winning a national title. Will they get to a playoff Final Four? Without question, because they are Alabama, but the backup quarterback is not going to take you to the promised land as everybody in Tuscaloosa is hoping for after losing last year to Georgia. But the Razorbacks were no match. Even though they got back in the game, they were down 28 nothing, and they actually made it 28 to 23 before Alabama turned on the Jets and were able to put them in the dust. But Georgia, with their win, but now being dropped down to second, so we'll see if they'll flip-flop along the way. Michigan beat Iowa. I thought Iowa, maybe there could have been some upset potential there, but that wasn't the case as Michigan was in control. Ohio State, the only reason why I bring this up, they won 49-10 against Rutgers. Even Rutgers had a lead early on, if you could believe that. But Ryan Day, at 49-10, decides to go for a fake punt to where they run for a first down late there in the fourth quarter, and the Rutgers player, I don't know who it was, as the punter was running out of bounds, and he was maybe, I don't know, five, seven feet out of bounds, got blasted on the sidelines. And if I'm Greg Schiano, the coach, I give that guy the captaincy on the spot because that was uncalled for for the coach to run a fake punt up 49-10 that late in the game. And I know Ryan Day went to Schiano afterwards and apologized and said he was sorry, even though Day looked like he was shouting there on the sidelines at that point or right after the fake punt took place. But I love that because even though that was obviously a flag, 15 yards on Sportsman like the whole nine, but you don't do that. So kudos to that kid for making that hit. And people could say, Jay Reels, that's a terrible look. How could you condone that so on and so forth? Uh-uh. You don't do that. I'm sorry. Now listen, if the guy was 10 yards out of bounds or whatever, but yeah, he was out of bounds clearly without question. But guess what? You're going to take this with you on the way out for just not only executing that play, but even thinking about doing that play that late in the game. So I like that play by the Rutgers kid. Clemson, they did what they had to do against NC State. So NC State, they were going up in class there in the conference and they were no match for the Tigers. Other games, Kentucky, they were ranked in the top 10. Not anymore because Ole Miss, the Rebels, it pretty much came down to that final drive to where Kentucky had a touchdown which looked like it was going to take the lead, but it was called back because of an illegal motion, and then they get a strip sack and recovery by the Rebels, and that was it for Kentucky. And Kentucky shot themselves in the foot plenty of times in this game, so they were not the better team, but give it up to Ole Miss. They played very well, and now they'll move up a little bit in the rankings, which I'll get to in a minute. But Kentucky, you could say bye-bye to any chance or any opportunity of them, and we all know they play in the SEC, so you know they're going to lose another game along the way, so you can forget about them. Okie State beats Baylor. So Okie State will stay in the top 10 and move up in the rankings as well as Baylor 
Although they tried to scratch and claw their way back into the game, but not enough as the Cowboys were victorious there on the road. Texas A&M, talk about them trying to bounce back after that Appalachian State game to where they beat Miami, who, of course, you can't find Miami anymore. And then they beat Arkansas, so you're thinking, all right, good trajectory here. You're going to TCU before you play Alabama, and I think that's what happened. The ultimate trap game as they looked ahead to Alabama having to go to Tuscaloosa to try to put a stamp on their season and put that Appalachian State loss to the side. But what happens? They get stomped by Mississippi State on the road. So you can forget about them. And who knows? I don't know what kind of showing they'll have in Tuscaloosa this coming weekend. But you can forget about Texas A&M as far as any talk about being in the playoff. And yes, I think I mentioned TCU. My bad was Mississippi State because that's the following game. The embarrassment that Oklahoma was as they lost to TCU and were not in the game at all as they give up 55 points and you could pretty much look at them as their season being out to sea. College football, topsy-turvy. Actually surprised how this weekend unfolded, even the last couple of weekends. Even though the games have not been great, but to see some flip-flopping going on as far as the rankings go, we have another couple of teams in the top 10 fall out. So as I mentioned earlier, Alabama, now number one in the country, followed by Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and Clemson. So pretty much those top five stay the same other than the top two. USC moves up. Oklahoma moves up two spots. Tennessee, Ole Miss goes from 14 to 9, and then Penn State at 10. And then you want to talk Utah, Oregon, 11 and 12. And you can forget about the rest of the teams below that. So college football had a very good week. Interesting week when we saw some of the teams fall out of the top 10, other teams moving up, and Alabama now at their lofty perch at number one. We'll see how long that lasts as, like I mentioned, Texas A&M, if they give them a rock fight and a 15-round fight to where they may lose late, but Alabama wins, let's say, a 38-35 type game, and Georgia, I don't even know who they play next week, but they run it up against whomever it is that they're going to face then maybe Georgia will get back to number one as we would think both of those teams are going to meet once again for a national title. A couple of the quickies before I wrap up. The NHL season begins on Friday in Prague, Czech Republic, where you have Nashville and San Jose playing. I bring that up because the actual season or the regular season here in the States or North America, I should say, begins a week from tomorrow. So I will have my over-under point totals next Monday. And I don't know, this will be a first for me. So let's see how I'm going to navigate this. But Nashville or San Jose aren't going to be any of my two picks. You can forget about that. But next week, you'll get my over-under point totals. There was also a couple of news and notes to discuss, whether it's Jonathan Tavares, the Maple Leaf and former Islander captain. He's going to be out with an oblique the first two weeks of the season. And the Maple Leafs, we know all the baggage and all the heartache that they've had. (laughs) Talk about heartache for a franchise that hasn't won since 1967. So as bad as my Mets have been, thank God I'm not a Maple Leaf fan. So they're going to have to deal with that for the early portion of the year as we get into gear as the hockey season is near. So I'll touch on that next week. And as far as the NBA goes, three quickies. Tyler Hero signs a four-year, $130 million extension. 
Now the Heat, to me, they need another season scorer. I know Hero is a very good scorer. He's streaky just like a lot of other shooters in the league. But to me, if they want to take that next step, and we know their roster, and we know the type of players that they have, and they are championship worthy. But with Hero being out in that Eastern Conference Final against the Celtics, and them not having another good, pure shooter. And I understand there's not a lot of them out there. But Hero, they had to sign him, they had to extend him, fine. But if they want to get to a final, get over the hump, they needed that one guy that, other than Jimmy Butler, who took that three there at what, 98-90 or 98-96 in the closing seconds of Game 7 against the Celtics, if that was somebody else who was a smooth, silky three-point shooter, who knows, maybe Miami moves on and plays the Warriors in an NBA final. But good for Hero, he gets his extension and let's see if he remains healthy throughout the season and takes those big shots when the game is on the line. And speaking of the Celtics, they signed Blake Griffin. I get it. He's going to be more of an experienced locker room guy. Not that you look at Blake Griffin as a glue guy, as a guy that people are going to rally around. If you want to go back to his days as a Clipper, there was a lot of discontent toward the end of the Lob City run with Chris Paul. But again, he's just a filler for Danilo Gallinari being out with the ACL. Obviously, he doesn't have the outside shooting that Gallinari has, but he's a guy that's going to eat up some minutes for Jason Tatum, for Jalen Brown. That's all that move is. So whatever you're going to get out of him, hopefully it's something and not next to nothing. And then one last thing, I know it come out that there was some crude dialogue that was mentioned in the whole Ime Odoka affair with the staffer on the Celtics and we talked about that the last couple of podcasts who knows what the crude language is that has not been released or revealed but we knew that there was something deeper than what we thought considering that he got a year suspension you're not going to get a year suspension by the team if you just had an affair there had to be more to it than that and obviously there was so who knows what that language was or was it a threat was it just something that was overtly sexual or even overtly that could be I'm not going to go as far as saying that he could be criminally charged but just out of bounds and crossing the line I'm sure it wasn't pretty and who knows if that's ever going to be put out there but uh, to kind of put that story to bed that's what we got at least at this point and who knows what more is going to come out in the days, weeks, and months to come. That'll do it, my good people. I thought it was going to be worse. I thought I was going to curse up a storm. And I know last night at around 10.45, I was thinking that way. And even when I woke up this morning, but I guess a cooler head prevailed to the point where I didn't shout out a lot of expletives. So I thank you all for stopping by. I thank you all for listening to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. Your participation is never taken for granted. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast um, wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, or suggestions, you could do so at any of the social media accounts, whether it's TikTok, the J Reels Podcast, Instagram, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com, the email address. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com 
slash the J Reels podcast, whatever you want to put forth. I would gratefully and thankfully, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate your contribution. That's going to go 100% to this production, the upkeep of the website, equipment, etc. Because if you weren't able to tell over the past hour of how I feel about the world of sports, then I don't know. Either I got to step up my game even more or I got to even talk louder or maybe I have to start cursing. Who knows? Because it's in the blood, people. It's in the DNA. This is what I love to talk about. This is what I've been talking about pretty much since birth. Whether it's critiquing, analyzing, praising my thoughts, opinions, analysis on anything and everything that has to do with what goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to Southeast to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>